My name is Sarah Mukherjee and this is Sustainable Matters, the podcast all about big ideas and hope for the planet. A show where we are realistic about the challenges we face. We have the cheapest food other than America in the world and a lot of that food is harmful to the environment. But also optimistic about the future. I think our resilience, our imagination, our ability to solve problems so far has always been a match for our ability to destroy things. This week on the podcast, we're talking to Henry Dimbleby. Henry is the author of the National Food Strategy, the co-author of the School Food Plan, founder of Chefs in Schools and the restaurant chain Leon, and now author of a new book called Ravenous, described as a jaw-dropping guide to the modern food system. He wrote the book with his wife, Jemima Lewis. Now, in the interview, we talk about Henry's love of food, which ranges from cooking it, selling it, studying it, and helping us to make better choices about it as individuals and, he hopes, as a country. So I started by asking him about school, which he didn't much enjoy, as you'll hear, and how he was less than diligent at university. No, I don't remember school very much. I think I've kind of glossed that over. I didn't like boarding school. I think it's a wicked thing to do to people. Um, But at at university, funnily enough, I spent most of my time at university playing three-card brag, poker and bridge late at night. And we used to watch the cricket from Australia on the teletext because you didn't have you could so say you would wait and then every five minutes it would run down you'd see someone had got another run and I completely missed the milk round I didn't realize that people got jobs after university I thought you just thought about that afterwards I studied physics and philosophy and my whole career after that has been in some ways a bit of a random walk I feel like in Munster there's that street isn't there with all the bars and I feel someone like you know got bored in one bar and walked out in the street and went to look for the next best bar but looking back now you can see a pattern so the pattern has been always walking towards something I was interested in so after university I happened to met a chef Bruno Lube amazing French chef who had a Michelin star restaurant four seasons on the park I met him at a party and then went to work for him as a commie chef I then thought... I mean, sorry to cut in there, but that is quite a dog leg, isn't it, from what people from Oxford normally do? I mean, commie chef is not one of the things that are even in the milk round. Yes, but the three people who I used to play those cards with, none of them did the milk round either. And one of them now, having spent a long part of his life commentating on cricket on the sofa over the internet on his flat and tooting, is now one of the commentators on Test Match Special. One of them is a BBC economics editor, and one of them is an editor at the FT. So we all of us were spat out of university without having got a job. And I happened to have met Bruno and said to him, what would I do if I wanted to be a cook as a joke? And he said, why don't you come and cook for me? So I used to go, while I was doing my finals, I used to go up to London on the bus and go and cook for him and then come back and then... When I was kind of about to do my final, I said, what would I do if I wanted to be a proper chef? And he said, well, why don't you come and work for me? And I hadn't got a job. I only realised that, the I mean, God knows why, it was a clear sign of not being properly switched on, but I only realised that the whole milk run thing existed when, when I was a consultant, I was sent back to Oxford to present to people and try and persuade them to join the company I was working for. 
I turned around and I said, God, I, I wish they'd had this when I was here. This would have made life much easier. Uh, and it turned out they, they had. Did, I just yeah. hadn't, I hadn't, been, <laughs> hadn't been switched on. But that's interesting. I mean, so much of this seems to be about confidence. And you had confidence that something interesting would turn up. Is that the case or, or was it less structured than that? I don't, think, I don't that? think I had confidence, but I didn't have real fear of failure. So if I think about people with less of a safety net, I know a lot of people who, if something went wrong, it could be disaster. And if you come from a relatively well-off family, it wasn't like I was the kind of, you know, another Eton Oxford person. It wasn't like Boris Johnson with kind of massive self-confidence. I was actually quite socially a bit shy, but the reality was I wasn't going to fall into a chasm. And so I kind of wandered. So I went from doing, being a chef. I then, my father had at that time a small family newspaper business in southwest London. And I thought, well, I better learn about newspapers. So I went and became a gossip columnist at the Daily Telegraph, where you started off by just going and they didn't pay you and they gave you invitations to parties. And then if you got a story from the party, they'd pay you 50 quid if it was a a story in the middle of the column or a hundred quid dreadful. if it was a lead. Yeah, I did a brilliant job. <laughs> Do for you remember a, any of it? <laughs> I, I loved it. I, my friend Dan, who was on the column, too, he was asked, like, what were you good at as a gossip columnist? And he said, I've got very good at butting in. <laughs> <laughs> but also, actually, it teaches, you know, you, someone was, I remember there was a story about Jeff Coons, the pop artist, who at the time was going out with an Italian porn star slash politician called La Cicciolina. Oh, gosh, yes. Remember her? And I had to try and find her mobile phone number and ring her up and interview her within the day. And I managed to do it. Like, you know, you're a journalist. You know, when you ring someone and so you kind of, you know, how do I get closer to it? And I do think being a gossip columnist teaches you a bit of entrepreneurialism. And- but I wasn't a good writer, so I then left being a journalist and then I became a management consultant to try and learn about business and then I realised I love food and started Leon. Yeah and another really interesting dog leg in your career because going from a journalist where you're you know, going to parties and getting info to a very corporate I would imagine full-on corporate life of breakfast meetings and spreadsheets and project management I mean was that a real shock to the system? That was it was a real I mean I, the, the narrative was well, if I wanted to run newspapers, I'd been a journalist now, I had to learn about right. business. Okay. But I felt for a long time in that job, I felt the worst imposter syndrome I've ever had because I had come out, everyone else there had been, I mean, they were all kids as well, like I was, but somehow because I'd been a chef and then a journalist and then done it, I didn't feel I was a business person, you know, proper business person. But and that I, sort of diversity of thought, I mean, we now, modern business is look for diversity for mavericks for people who are iconoclastic were you viewed like that or was it all a bit suspicious i don't know i was too the heart so much of it was so weird i remember being sent to coventry the first meeting i did on my own was to go to coventry to a bank to interview some management about something and i remember sitting down in this office in coventry with two other people and just looking at them and thinking why am I here? Why? And I, having, I guess, a panic attack, like massive rush of adrenaline. <laughs> My hand was shaking so much, I couldn't make notes. So I had to hold up my notebook to pretend I was making notes because I literally couldn't write. But it got a bit better than that. Uh, and I've always found there's something about 
the fake formalities of corporate life that I've never liked. I, I learned to quite enjoy aspects of business. I was sent out to Japan to go and work in Japan. It was one of the best years of my life. Really enjoyed it. Had a lovely Japanese team. Had an interpreter. It was just fantastic. But I didn't enjoy the kind of, you know, that formalese, not saying what you really mean. And you realise that so much of business is people covering up for not being able to say, I don't know, by using... Jargon. Jargon. But an opportunity for you to prove yourself away from a weight of expectation around journalism, from being, you know, the CEO of an incredibly famous journalistic family. This was, people wouldn't have assumed a whole load of stuff about you because you were there with a well-known management. Yeah, I think it would have been very difficult being a journalist. My dad did it. He was a journalist and his dad was a famous But the great thing about being at Bain was that that, it you, it, you were you on your own terms. I get well. I wasn't on my own terms really because I was doing this weird thing. But yes, I guess so. Weirdly, Did you feel like I that? always used to like. So when I when we set up Leon, I realised you know, with the business thing that actually it wasn't business per se. I wanted to do something that I was interested in as well. But I always used to love it. There've been two transitions in my life. The first was when they stopped saying, "Are you David Dimbleby's son or whose son are you?" and they said. Are you Jocelyn Dimbleby's son? I was because my mother was a cookery writer, and that for me was much more important because that's what I'd ended up doing. And then there came a point, terrifyingly recently, where people didn't ask. You know, I'm 52 <laughs> now, and I've just just people just stopped asking me who my parents are, which is, I guess, a bit infantilising. But yeah, there you go. Well, because you've had, you know, and I, I'd, obviously we're sitting next to each other, but I'm not just saying this to uh, try and flatter you. I mean, you have had a a stunning difference in the conversation, national conversation around food in this country. And what oh, we'll come to you. that in a bit. Well, it's absolutely true, but we'll come to that in a minute because the next stage out of your corporate existence became a business owner and then into food strategy, working with food strategy. How did that start and how did that work, the move into more policy making? So it was, a, it was slightly following what you're interested in. So John and I... John Vincent, my co-founder of Leon, set up Leon. It was pretty much a selfish endeavour in that the idea was we couldn't get food we wanted to eat on the go that that we enjoyed, that didn't make us fall asleep and wasn't disgusting. And then because of the way we talked, like the tone of voice we used in Leon, people assumed we were doing all sorts of other things. So people assumed we were organic, which we weren't. They assumed that we were high animal welfare, which we hadn't really thought about. They assumed that we were... You know, it wasn't net zero at the time. I don't think it was, this was 2004. So it was just beginning to become a thing. But they thought we were doing all these things. And that kind of made us feel a responsibility to think a bit more about what we were and we weren't doing. We had to train people to tell customers if they were asked, is it organic? We had to train people to say no, which is quite interesting. From that, I then met Michael Gove, the then education secretary, at someone else's house and we spent a long time talking about school food because he was being smashed over the head by Jamie Oliver about school food and I was kind of interested I've always been in physics and philosophy always been interested in how stuff works always taken stuff apart never been the person who can put it back together again but I've always taken stuff apart to understand how it works and so we had a long conversation but it was me just trying to understand it and then he got in touch a week later and said will you do some work on school food, an independent review for government. And the reason that happened, there was a 
One of our investors was a man called Gavin Davis, who'd been Gordon Brown's advisor and an economist at Goldman Sachs, former chair of the BBC. And I went to him and said, you know, we, John and I have been asked to do this thing. You know, should we do it? And rather than saying, no, mate, keep your eye on my money, he said, do it because it will change your life. You know, that kind of thing will just it'll lead to all sorts of things. So I did that and learned a lot then about politics and policy and some good things came. We got universal infant free school meals happened because of that work and some decent stuff on food in the curriculum. And actually, and the charity, Chefs and Schools, because while I was doing it, I tweeted that the chef at our local kids' local state school had, he was leaving, and did anyone want to come do the job? And Nicole Pisani, who at the time was head chef of Ottolenghi's Nopi, replied, and she became the cook in our local school. And then we set up this charity, Chefs and Schools, which, together, which helps schools improve their food. So that was kind of another random thing that happened. And then Gove was moved to... Well, he was fired before the election by Cameron, and then he was brought back, and he was moved to DEFRA. And there, as people listening to this may well know, there'd been a, after leaving the European Union, the Common Agricultural Policy, there was a desire to try and create a farming system that was more environmentally friendly and net zero, but he was getting a lot of jip from people saying well it's all very well but we can't eat butterflies what about food security what about health how does this all fit together and so he asked me to come in and do another review the national food strategy to look at all of that which if i hadn't done the school food plan i would never have said yes but i kind of felt at that time well i've been a strategy consultant i've done one government review i really enjoy trying to work stuff out and Although I can't be an expert, no one's going to be an expert in all of the food system. I've got a business in it. I've worked in schools. I kind of felt that would be an interesting thing to do. And that then became, because COVID happened, it became pretty much three, three and a bit years of work. It became much longer. I mean, you were on the expert panel, so you remember. Yeah, you I remember. should declare an interest here because, um, yes, and it was... First of all, it was an amazing set of people you got together. And I think that says a lot about your convening power and the, the spread of people. But some of the conversations, I know they're Chatham House, so I won't mention any names, but some of the conversations, and I'd, I'd like to explore this a little bit, did come around that people eat better if you pay them more. So why aren't we saying pay people more? And there is a danger always that this sounds like you know a bit of a luxury pursuit. People who read the broadsheets kind of wagging their fingers at people who can't afford, for all the reasons that you mentioned in the strategy, to eat properly. So, so how did you manage to mitigate both of those? Because I think you know, it could have sounded like a really preachy, yeah. upper-middle-class diet. I mean, well, if, if people just cooked lentils and nourished themselves, then they wouldn't, we wouldn't have these problems. Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, the, uh, uh, occasionally people would say, well, you know, why why is it up for you and Eton, Oxford-educated, you know, whatever, to tell people what to eat? And I said, but what's interesting is that, that, first of all, that's not what I'm doing. And secondly, it's only ever well-educated, rich people who ask me that question. Because, as you know, <laughs> we went and visited people all over the country in different realms. People are fed up with the way the food system works. But I think you have to do a. You know, you have, there are a few steps that you have to make to understand that. First of all, you have to acknowledge the problem of poverty in this country has been partially solved with cheap, unsustainable food. So, you have a situation where we have 
the cheapest food other than America in the world, and a lot of that food is harmful to the environment and to our health. The second thing that you have to kind of realise is that actually it is possible to create a better diet for the majority of the people that doesn't do those things. And you have to realise that if we don't do that, you know, it literally isn't sustainable. So literally it is the biggest cause of biodiversity collapse. It's the biggest cause of freshwater stress, freshwater pollution, deforestation, second biggest cause of climate change. If we don't do it, it literally isn't sustainable. We cannot carry on doing that. So then you say, well, what does that transition look like? And you set out how you can go from here to there. And then you have to recognise that with society economically structured as it is, there are a group of people where you have to support their diets, where you have to help them buy decent food. And what is interesting about that is that that, again, is something that people who aren't in that situation say, well, you know, it's demeaning to give people holiday activity and food programmes. Why didn't you just give them money? It's demeaning to do free school meals. Just give them money. And actually, when you talk to people in that situation, those policies, Healthy Start, Healthy Start's a, a policy where you can get supplementary vouchers for fruit and veg if you're living in poverty and have kids. And people say, I loved the fact that it wasn't money because it meant I could get a bowl of fruit, put it on the table, my kids would eat it, and I didn't feel guilty about it. There's a program in running in Hackney at the moment, Alexander Rose Foundation, where they're giving £8 vouchers to families in poverty to go and spend at Ridley Road and other markets. And not only are the children in those families, they've gone from 5% eating their five a day to 64%. But the families say exactly like that thing, which is, I feel less stressed because I don't feel I'm constantly having to make a trade-off between the household budget and the health of my children. And I just think that I wish that people who... Anyone listening to this, if you ever get asked to do an independent review, do it because it's an amazing privilege and you get to meet... You know, As you know, you can ring up anyone in the world, like the cleverest people in the world, and ask them what the answer is. But it is just as important to go and spend a lot of time in communities talking about how the world actually is because it is often the case that the experts the cleverest people don't do enough of that and funny enough you you might remember we had one conversation there was an amazing woman called daisy stemple who was on our advisory panel who had in the past lived in poverty had been on healthy start and she's amazing she was amazing whenever some big food company ceo would start to pontificate and she would just go no no it doesn't work like that and she would just describe in really intricate detail how it actually and you could see immediately why he would think it worked like that and then she would just be no no no, that's not how it works and i just think that's so powerful that so i'd say you know that is i think one of the things that we managed to do well was pay attention to what was actually going on as well as what clever people thought was going on now you you mentioned what a great experience it was and I have to say it was an absolute privilege to be part of that expert panel. It was it was an amazing experience. But as often happens with these amazing documents, we are never short of policy documents in the UK. Really good ones put together by experts. And they kind of sit on a shelf because the person who sponsored it isn't the person who's in the office anymore. Everybody in the food industry said what a well-researched piece of work that was. And yet... 20% of what you suggested has actually come to fruition. I mean, how was that? Did you expect that? Was it super frustrating? I, 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 because I'd done... So with the school food plan, 
we agreed with Gove that we'd publish it as a plan, that we'd negotiate with him, and it would be, this is what the government's doing. I knew immediately with the food strategy that wasn't going to be possible. And I also knew that the risks. And so we set out to do two things. One was to create a set of ideas, because actually those are important, and you're not able to fix the system unless you understand why it's gone wrong and most of the reasons people thought it had gone wrong weren't right. So we tried to get the ideas and then tried to create a set of policies and then immediately published I thought, you know, these ideas are not no one's going to read them on a government website so that's why we turned it into, with my wife Jemima Lewis, we turned it into a book, Ravenous. I actually, if I kind of look now, on the environment side and on the poverty side, thanks to Marcus Rashford who campaigned for some of the recommendations, I actually think there is progress being made, not on poverty in general, but on the way in which we create those safety nets. There's progress being made. The government has gone backwards on health. There are some recommendations that we didn't put in because, you know, banning of junk food advertising to children, for example, because they said they were going to do it and they haven't done it. But the phrase that we use to describe how the system works, the junk food cycle, has stuck. And so the paradigm used to be that if you were sick because of food, it was because you were either ill-educated or lazy, and it was your fault. And interestingly, that was something that people, when we looked at the focus groups, they believed themselves, even if they were sick, and it clearly isn't the case. Commercial incentives companies are so intense for them to market to us food that our ancient evolved appetites love, that they do that more and more, we eat more and more, and we get sick. And this junk food cycle, you're only going to break that by tackling those commercial incentives. And I talk now, you know, at the moment I'm doing quite a lot of talking to the Labour front bench. I'm talking to people inside government. And I do think that we're just beginning to make it quite difficult for people to say, you know, unless you're in a very ideological room, it's all other people's fault. We just need to educate people. I think that is becoming not a valid response to the health problems that food's causing. And I'm quite, you know, yes, you want everything to change, but at the same time, these things can be slow and changing the ideas is a first step. Having said that, I was up in, in Derby the other day. I was talking about it and I said, you know, the health thing is maybe a 10-year transition. And a GP stood up and said, we don't have 10 years. Every week I'm sending people off to get limbs amputated because of type 2 diabetes. And I'm prescribing people with appetite suppressant drugs. You know, so maybe I'm complacent, you know. I mean, who you never, you don't know, do you? But I think that there has been... I, I don't regret doing it, put it that way. You mentioned the book Ravenous, and it is a brilliant read. I've been lucky enough to read it. And it's a lot of what you said in the strategy you've expounded on, really incredibly well-researched. But there's a kind of anger. That's why I asked the question, really, because there was a, a frustration. I mean, to have an impatience that comes through in the book because... You've made the case, everybody gets it, but it's still not happening, even though you said you know, the cultures may be changing, and particularly around sustainability, which is like, you know, obviously, often not the thing that people talk about when they talk about your work. They talk a lot about fat taxes, they talk yeah. about preaching, but not a lot about the sustainability behind it. Well, on the sustainability side, the one lightning rod for my eye was Liz Truss, and I was quite open about the conversations that we had had. And this when she was not when she was Prime Minister, when she was doing the Australian trade deal, which didn't make it was logically incoherent with what the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs was trying to do. But the anger that I was trying, there were two reasons. I was trying to do two things. First of all, I was trying to show people 
what happens, why things go wrong. And this was because there was a tension between what trade wanted to do and what DEFRA wanted to do. And that is resolved by number 10. And at the time, you know, while I was in DEFRA, I had five secretaries of state, four prime ministers. We prepared for four no-deal Brexits, then had COVID, then had the war in Ukraine, then had the cost of living crisis. And to get these difficult decisions resolved, you need to have a stable number 10. Because a lot of decisions like that in government, you need to have number 10 becomes the decision point. So I was trying to show people that. The other thing I was trying to show was sometimes is the power of ideology. So I remember having a, I think we didn't write about this in the book, but I remember having a discussion before the Australian deal with one of Liz Truss's SPAD, special political advisors. And she was trying to persuade me that we needed to do the Australian deal. And halfway through the conversation, it became clear to me that she hadn't read the draft of the deal, which I had. And that made me really angry. I was like, you know, your whole job is to be in the, be on the detail. Like your <laughs> job is to be on the detail. But then you do realize there are a lot of people who enter politics who are enormously talented, work incredibly hard and want to do a good job for the country. There are other people who are deeply tribal and ideological and they spend too much time in their tribes without testing their thinking. And that made me angry. So that was kind of the main bit of anger in the in the book on the environmental side. But I do think whichever government wins the next election, I don't think there's any way back now on farming and on the agricultural transition. And if you look at how even now the government, you notice that things that people got very angry about, they're tweaking, it's very difficult. They're changing the incentives, paying a bit more here, changing what they're paying for there. And I think that will continue. And I think there's still a good chance on the environmental side that we will end up creating being the first country to create a form of farming that is both produces enough food and does so while restoring biodiversity and sequestering carbon i'm still quite excited about that i mean there's all sorts of ways in which we can go wrong but compared with health well i think there's a good chance we'll just end up drugging a third of our population i'm actually optimistic on on the environmental side i'd like to ask you about azempic in a minute and then move on to one of the people who's really inspired you but that point about inching your way to success in a very difficult ideological landscape. Do you think that could be a function of our political system, the first-past-the-post system? In most European democracies, there is some sort of proportional representation. Coalitions come together, and you know you'll probably be in power for 10, 15, 20 years. So when whatever you've decided comes to hit you in the bum in 20 years' time, you're still, or your successors will be there. But it's much more binary in this country. They're in, you're out. There's another set of people you've now got to talk to because there's going to be an election soon. Is that a way to ensure you get an entrenched view? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. So one of the problems is we can't really compare it because agricultural policy is done at an EU level. You can have a good guess at what Germany or Spain or Italy would do. But what you see... Tamsin Cooper, who was the lead civil servant on the food strategy, had spent a bit of time working on trying to get green regulation into the common agricultural policy. And she said that time and again, they'd get this close and then Eastern European countries would veto it. And so I don't think we know what agricultural policy Germany on its own or or those countries would have. And I do think that 
politics generally now. I was sitting next to um, a cabinet minister from the Blair administration the other day at a health conference. And I asked her, I said, you know, do you think politics is worse, harder than it was when you were there? And she said, it is so much worse. It is unbelievably harder. And I think that actually social media is more to blame for that. Because, you know, even if you look at, and this will come on to who we're going to be talking about later, if you look at even sensible people on social media getting involved in debates about farming and sustainability, where in the past they might have written a letter to the press, then everyone would have met and they would have seen each other. They, they get themselves worked up into such a ferment that everyone's abusing everyone else and it just becomes deeply unpleasant. I think that is more... Really, I'm not sure the, fir- the first past post doesn't have anything on, on that. I, mean, I do think that, you know, one of the things about the referendum, if you give someone a question, one question, yeah. which can split the country 50-50, even if it was something that they had hardly ever thought of, suddenly it becomes part of their identity. So I think that was a problem as well. So you have a whole bunch of people who'd never really thought about whether they were a main or leave suddenly find themselves... And actually, it's kind of weird to think, like, you know, you could probably have a referendum on almost anything and end up creating that. I mean, the problem with that was also that we didn't know how to, it was in competition with our elected democracy, with the way in which we did so that was problematic. But I don't know, I don't know about first past post, whether that's a problem. Moving on to Azempi, which you did mention, uh, you've mentioned as you in the conversations you've had about Ravenous, it stops you eating while you're on it. It doesn't once you're off it. Boris Johnson has famously written his first article at Daily Mail where he said he's tried it and now he's back on the cheese and salami. Is it a feasible model for reducing our collective weight? So Zempic is a brand name for semaglutide, which is yes. the first of, yeah. and also under Wago, people might know it by Wagovi. It is the first of what will be a large number of appetite-suppressing drugs. It replicates the action of GLP-1, which is a satiety hormone, and it makes people feel full. And people who have been all their lives struggling with their weight and unhealthy as a result of it report going on it. The whole kind of food brain shuts down, so just not spending an enormous amount of time worrying about food all the time and being healthier. And for those people, clearly... And I've met some, it is better than not being on it. The problem is, at a societal level, basically we're living in a swamp. The food that we are surrounded by is not good for us. And while we're living in a swamp, for some people who are particularly set with that, give them drugs that protect them, that's fine. But if you talk to any doctor, they will bring up two big concerns. One is that no drug does what it originally says it's going to do when it's launched, and there will be side effects. You know, Boris Johnson was one, was nausea. In America, there's a thing called Wagovi face. There's a suspicion that it prematurely ages you. Apparently, the Hollywood plastic surgeons are licking their lips because <laughs> Hollywood actors were the first people to take it. So there'll, there'll be side effects, and those side effects might cause scares, which then put people off who really could do with the drug taking it. But the other is, our hormones all evolved by random mutation and selection they all do lots of different things like you don't just have it's not like someone's created a Meccano model and glp1 does this and this other hormone does that they all act in quite complex ways and again doctors say 
if you try and hack a complex system just doing one thing, almost certainly that will cause problems down the line. So I don't think it is a responsible solution just to rely on the drugs. Also very expensive. Yeah, I was going to say, yes, and uh, and not really dealing with the root cause. But and not dealing with the root cause, the exactly. Effects. We ask on the podcast our guests if there is somebody they would like to nominate who has made a real difference or has really inspired them. You've mentioned there's a huge range of influences you've had, but is there anybody in particular that you would think of in the context of sustainability as someone who yeah, would be uh, an inspiration? So I think they would. I think he might be surprised, which is nice to say that he's an inspiration, but it's Martin Lines, who is someone who is pushing the boundaries of regenerative farming in this country. That is trying to farm in a way that uses lower inputs and leans into natural solutions to try and solve problems, but not necessarily going fully organic, but trying to find a way of farming at higher yields while protecting, restoring nature. And the reason that he is an inspiration, and he set up a thing called the Nature Friendly Farming Network, to spread the word. And the reason that I think he is interesting is because he doesn't proselytize and therefore he is able to attract and bring together people who have been very high yielding kind of industrial farmers just by saying, look, this, you know, what I noticed was as we restored the soil, we now use 30%, 40% less nitrogen. Come and see. And he'll arrange, like, just come and see, come and see what's going on. And also, you know, the people who are full-on organic people are kind of interested as well because he's doing some things that are very useful to them. He's finding, using science, ways of farming that produce high yields with lower inputs. And is a living, breathing farmer as opposed to somebody, a yeah. policy or a scientist who's yeah. telling farmers what to yeah. do? But also, I, I have no maybe secretly, when I've not been there, he tells people what to do. But he, if you look at farming social media it is full of people either being defensive because they feel understand but it's a very difficult time to be a farmer but like being angry defensive or telling other people what to do or and he just he doesn't do that he just says first of all you know we need to create a better future and just look at this look at this this is interesting and i just think that that he's a kind of non-proselytizing prophet but he is a prophet in that he is spreading the word of something you know he is going about and he's making a huge difference at a national level introducing other farmers to a way of farming that we need in this country if we're going to restore the nature that we've lost so um give us a sense of what martin's like funny enough i first came across him because someone said have you heard of this guy nature friendly farming network and they sent me a video of him standing on his farm and he used to make these videos and he had a kind of he looked like a farmer yeah you know good ruddy complexion strong hands but very gentle talking quite gently and just explaining what he was doing and how he was trying to improve his soil or cut his hedges a bit looser and but at the same time he had a there was a little sense of awe for nature running underneath it. I then met him a few times, and I just always, you know, he's one of those people who, he has an aura, you know. I don't know, have you met him? Yes. So there's just something about him when you meet him that is honest 
and purposeful. And to your point about it being quite binary and quite toxic, some of the debates, that's never what he's about. It's about the evidence, it's about the experience, it's about the whole interaction with nature and the farm being part of the environment in which it sits and the landscape in which it sits, which I think is... You're right, you you can't help but listen. I think you're right, and I think that... I remember someone once said to me that ideas are like butterflies. They're always floating about, and you have to be careful, look for them, and then find them and nurture them. And I think that what Martin's done with this idea there'll be a domino effect. He will have a power, having taken that idea and found a way of talking about it that will be way beyond anything that I imagine he would dream of. I think he'll be seen as one of the genuine forces for change when we look back in 10, 15 years' time to what's happened to UK farming. Henry, do you know what? I've got about 400 other questions I'd love to have asked you, but thank you so much for spending so much time with us. I think in the same way, I don't know, You always have an expression when people praise you, which looks, so I am not worthy, but you really are. I mean, the book, by the way, if you're interested in Ravenous, do have a look at the show notes because we'll put all the details in that. But you really will also be one of the people, I think, who will be looked back in 10 or 15 years' time and with the thought that you have really changed the conversation about how we demonise or don't demonise people because of the few choices they are forced to have and how we can make the way we eat and what we eat are much better and more sustainable. So thank you so much for joining us. My, a friend of mine always used to say that my mum, my mum, when she cooked him some delicious thing, and he said, oh, that was delicious, rather than go, oh, nonsense, nonsense, she would go, oh, thank you. So I'm going to say to you, oh, thank you. Oh, you're <laughs> welcome. Well, thank you, thank you. Now, I think Henry's book, Ravenous, is a must-read. I was lucky enough to work with him on the National Food Strategy Advisory Panel, and I think our conversation shows how his passion about making us better through the food that we eat really shines through. If you want to know more about the strategy itself, or indeed his book, Ravenous, have a look at the show notes, and there'll be lots of details there. Um, He worked with Jemima, I should say, as well, on the National Food Strategy. Now, for more information about the podcast and the work that Aima does, whether we can help you get on the first rung or the next run of your sustainable career, or if you're just interested from a personal or professional view about sustainability, have a look at aima.net. My name's Sarah Mukherjee. Thank you so much for listening to Sustainable Matters. And in the next podcast, we'll meet Henry's hero, the farmer Martin Lines. He's a third-generation farmer from Cambridgeshire and chair of the Nature Friendly Farming Network. To make sure you don't miss any of the episodes, do follow Sustainable Matters wherever you find your podcasts. And don't forget to rate, review and recommend it to a friend or colleague. Sustainable Matters, a podcast series full of solutions and optimism for a more sustainable world. Brought to you by AIMA, transforming the world to sustainability. How do I stay hopeful? I am just, I, I, I think that is kind of an attitudinal thing in some ways. I am uh, a pretty hopeful person generally. I think if you look back, if you look back at um, 
where we've come from as a human species, the problems that we've overcome, I think our, uh, our resilience, our imagination, our ability to solve problems so far has always been a match for our ability to destroy things. And uh, I, I have faith that that will continue to be the case.